Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach, and within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have Mudder Nan with me. Mudder is an author, yoga therapist, wife and mother, and we had a wonderful talk today. Please share this with friends. Buckle in for this conversation because Mudder has specialized in how to bring less stress into your life and specifically into your mind. She wrote the book, Stressless Brain. She grew up on an ashram and I was so excited to ask her about that experience because most of us didn't grow up on an ashram. And that did help form the early years for her path into therapy, into yoga, and bridging these two to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. She always wanted a book that had more tools to actually give you practical ways to help your anxiety and depression. And so she wrote this book, The Stressless Brain. Make sure that you check the show notes because there's a special code for you. And please enjoy this episode and share it. Welcome, Mutter. So grateful to have you on today to share your wisdom and your experience with stress and yoga and therapy and all of the good stuff that people can all benefit from. So welcome. Thank you so much, Laura. It's great to be here. Well, I always like to start off on your own path. How how did you get to the place where you are now? Where did you, uh, did you always know this was something you wanted to do? Or can you tell us a little bit about your journey here? Yes. Um, no, I actually, which is interesting, 
when I was in university, I first started studying international business marketing. So it could not have been further from <laughs> psychology and therapy. Um, Although there's some therapy and and, and psychology and marketing. (laughs) Yeah, but but, yeah, but back in the 90s, maybe not so much. (laughs) Maybe not. Yes. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I mean, nowadays everything is like intertwined. It's amazing. Um, But um, I I was studying international business marketing and I realized this is not really the career path for me because it's very cutthroat, even though I, I could do it, I didn't want to do it. And And so I was on a trip with my mom and we made a list of all these different topics and things I love to do and learn and such and such. And in the end, the theme that kept sticking out was helping people. And Mm. so then I switched majors and I've been a therapist for about 22, 23 years. And I, I really love helping people and and then my parents are actually international yoga teachers. And so I grew up in the whole yoga and meditation world. And it was actually my clients who were asking me about my yoga classes. They're like, what were you talking about in class? And, and they were the ones who brought the spiritual practice and yogic technology. Um, they're the ones that asked me to bring it into the therapy modality and such. And then it just birthed from there. And so the two have been interweaven and have ebbed and flowed for many years. And here I am. Here you are. So I'm curious, growing up with parents like that, did you resist at all and want to go the other direction and not have uh, yoga as a part of your life? Or did you always love it and accept it? Or were you kind of a little bit neutral in the beginning? (laughs) Um, no, actually in the beginning, I really loved, um, growing up in an ashram and, and having parents that had, um, who were always teaching and I didn't always like sharing my parents with everybody. And so that, that was tough, but I had a lot of aunties and uncles and people who really cared about me. And, um, I actually talk about this in my book when I couldn't sleep at night, I would take my blanket and go into my mom's yoga class. And I would whisper in her ear to say, can you please do a chanting meditation so that I can sleep? And I'd fall asleep and my dad would carry me back to my room. And so when I was young, I really felt comfortable and enjoyed the lifestyle and being with my parents and and then, of course, when I was in my teenage years, I wasn't that interested. I actually was a bit of a metalhead, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, and then, and then I found as I was becoming more aware of my of myself as a human being and separate, which kind of happens in college when you're in your early twenties. Like, who am I, and how do I relate? You know, relate to or not relate to, or connect to or not connect to people around me. And, and then having some heartbreak and some difficulties, I ended up coming back to meditation and chanting and found that it really was a great tool to not fix everything, but to help me manage the waves of emotion and confusion of, of growing up. Oh, I love that, but that it's not fixing it, but it, that, because the tools are what we need and the management, it's not, it, to pretend like we're, it's just going to go away um, is not is a disservice. But before we go in that direction, I'm fascinated, I'm sure anyone 
listening is probably a little fascinated since most of us haven't grown up in an ashram. Can you just briefly tell us, obviously you don't know any different, that's what you mm -hmm. grew up with, but I'm sure from this perspective now where you are in life and mm -hmm. uh, maybe being of the age where your parents were or just seeing other people that you met later in life and, and hearing the stories about how they grew up, maybe you have the perspective of how it's different. Can you just tell us a little bit about like life in an ashram? Yes. I mean, life in an ashram has lots of pros and cons as any, as any situation. And, and the best way to describe it is if you imagine a large cul-de-sac of homes, mm -hmm. but all of the families and people live in one house. There's not there's just one house, not seven homes or five homes. And so, and so we lived in a, in a big, a big apartment in Hamburg, Germany, and there were a half a dozen families. There were not that many children at that time. I was the oldest and um, and they would come and go. People would come and want to live the yogic lifestyle and would be there and they, they and sometimes they, they would they would leave and and it's very much communal living. It's you know we would eat a lot of meals together and we would um, my parents owned a vegetarian restaurant. And so a lot of the people would work in the restaurant. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of very popular um, interventions now that I've been doing for 45 years. And now they're just like mainstream and people will say to me like, oh, did you know that cold showers are really good for your nervous system? And I was like, oh yeah, I been doing cold showers since I was a little girl and oh wow so wow. you know and that's like you know the the kind of romantic side of it if you will you know the, the hard side of it is is um sharing my parents with other people and um and <clears throat> and you know just my parents were very much at that time in their life in the service of serving the community and the yoga you know, mission and such and such. And I mean, another way to think about it is, is um, there are, you know, different Christian communities or Jewish communities that are actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's, it's just been around for centuries and centuries. Yes. Was it interesting for you um, going through school for therapy? I'm sure that you have to do a lot of your own internal work and examining that and just examining that feeling of of maybe not having your parents always mm -hmm. as close as you wanted. And did that manifest in any way for you besides just that memory of that you didn't like to share them? Um, well, I mean, we all have trauma drama in our childhood, regardless of um, what happens. Of course, some people have bigger traumas and bigger dramas. And, but, you know, there's, I, I often share with my clients that there's three primary things um, that children all need. And that's unconditional love to feel heard and to feel seen. And rarely do we get all three of them. And so, you know, like everyone else, like while I was going through my master's program, that there was a lot of, of, really looking at how I relate, relate to my parents and what it felt like. And, you know, there's one of my themes was abandonment and, mm -hmm. um, I felt very loved, but I didn't always feel seen and heard. And, um, and I tried to rebel or did rebel like everyone else. And my parents pushed back. And so there is that piece of, of really trying to find yourself and, and hear your own self, which interestingly is even hard to do for ourselves. Oh, yes, it is. And and 
I'm sure some of it becomes really intertwined and fuzzy. Like what is, you know, how do we, what, how do we separate the things that we needed earlier that we might've not even been aware we weren't getting and how that plays out with what our needs are now. Like what informs wit, you know, they both yeah. have to, there's probably a conversation and, and I'm sure that all of this has prepared you for parenthood in a way of, you know, knowing that, mm -hmm. um, what are some, what are some just before we dive into the other things you do, sure, but sure. I know that you are a family therapist for, for the moms and dads and, and parents out there. What are, to, to really, um, kind of make sure that you're as much as possible touching on, on those three pillars. Mm -hmm. What are some tips that you have? Well, I think that, um, first thing first, no matter what we do as parents, we can try to be the best parents that we want to be. Our child will come back and say, you loved me too much, or you didn't love me enough, or you gave me too many boundaries, or you were, didn't give me enough boundaries. And I know from my own self, even as a therapist, I read a lot of books. I'm like, oh my God, I did that with my kid. Or, oh my God, I did that with my kids. And in the bottom line is there's a couple of things. One is usually every generation is a better version than the generation before, because what happens is we tend to parent our children in the way that we wish we'd been parented. Ironically, another cosmic joke is, is that it's not necessarily what your child needed or needs. So I think part of it is, um, you know, there's a couple things. One is them. One of it is is that as your children are young, they do really need boundaries because we talk about this in psychology. Is that children will expand in the space you give them. Mm -hmm. So if you give them too much space, they will fill that space up, and they may not be developmented developmental enough to be able to handle that or know what decisions to make, and. As children grow older, get older, I have an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old, and as they get older, you obviously expand that space because eventually they will leave home, which is what we want. And so there's a couple of things. One is um, that if you have an argument with your child, what you the one way to make up that helps them feel heard and seen is you come back to your child afterwards and a you talk about it you don't just pretend you just move on and you know sweep it under the rug which a lot of us do in our romantic relationships and friendships and coworkers but with your child you come back and you say to them what was the worst thing or the most hurtful thing i said or did hmm. and you ask your child because a, you'll probably be surprised what they actually say. It may not be the thing that you feel the most bad about or wish you hadn't done, but it, it's an opportunity for them to learn what, you know, to learn communication because it can then be the reverse. You can say, okay, what's the thing that I did that hurt you the most? And you listen and you validate. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. You just want to validate what they're saying. And then it goes, you know, as as they, you know, again, age appropriate for different ages, but then you would share, okay, the one thing that was hardest for me, and this is an opportunity to practice in teaching them language. So it's not, not been saying you, you, you are bad and, you know, good and bad and right and wrong, but you say, you know, what really triggered me or what bothered me the most was when, you know, 
you said I, you hated me. Like, I, you know, it's a, I understand you're mad at me. Maybe it tries to say I'm mad at you. Mm-hmm. And so I think that doing that coming back is, is that it teaches children to be able to be comfortable in confrontation, which is a part of life. And so many people don't like confrontation. We avoid it. But if we learn, if we teach our children and we come back and we hold that space and we ask them and we're respectful, respectful, then we're actually teaching them how to have um, conclusions and endings so that new beginnings can begin. Right. And it's just like it all gets back to that management, which will ultimately get into with stress, because I'm just thinking that it's pretty obvious, but if things are not, if you aren't taught these things or you haven't practiced these things in younger years and then adolescent and then as young adults, like it's a, you know, you're not fostering this resilience and this, um, these opportunities to, you know, hold space in conflict, be in conflict and not Mm -hmm. freak out and not run away. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know that I always, as mid, as everybody does, disliked con- conflict. So my answer would be to turn and walk away. And, you know, in my early relationships, and that's not helpful at all, right? Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, and so I've, I, but I think, wow, if I had more of a chance to learn how to stay and sit and be uncomfortable, but have that discussion, um, that would probably have not only benefited me, but definitely benefited my partners, who I'm sure yeah. that was incredibly frustrating. You know, and, and interestingly enough, yoga and meditation teaches us to be uncomfortable and to stick through it and come out the other end. And I often would tell people in my yoga classes is that the experience you have in this class helps you to be in experience of your life because you, I mean, you're holding a posture or you're keeping up a movement or you're feeling slightly uncomfortable as long as it's not harming, physically harming a joint or your spine or something, but when you're able to sit there and, or, or move in that experience and you're watching your mind go through the gamut of fight, flight, and freeze. Mm-hmm. And, and it may not look fight, flight, and freeze. It may look as judgment, shutting off, dissociating, or criticizing, you know, mm-hmm. like you can, you, your mind will do that. Like this teacher, what is he does? Nah, 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 nah. Or, oh my God, I should have come to this class or, oh my God, I, other people are doing it perfect. And I'm not like all of that is, is your mind trying to make sense of I'm uncomfortable. And if we can learn in that experience, because a teacher is most likely going to say something like follow your breath and deep, breathe deep and find your focus they're not bringing, the teacher ideally is not bringing you to them. The teacher's bringing you to yourself so that outside of the class, when your child's having a meltdown in the aisle at the grocery store and throws themselves to the ground and you're like, oh, people are judging me or you're trying to control the child, which just makes it worse. That in that moment is how do you follow your breath and you, you remind, oh, you know, it was a different, it was maybe downward dog and versus my child screaming on the floor, but it still can be a similar conversation in your head. It's, that's so true. I think in a way yoga can reveal the, that inner dialogue that we're not always even aware of that can often be, um, not, not a positive or, or, um, helpful dialogue 
the way we criticize ourselves or easily get bored or easily get angry. I mean, all those things, yes, they can be manifested in the mind and the body. Mm -hmm. And then the breath is like affected as well. So I love that. I love that. What would you do if your child was having a meltdown? I mean, you, your kids are like my kids' ages now. And I'm trying to remember back. I think we forget. Like I always think, I don't really remember my kid ever having like, Oh, I remember. Um, I yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, I had taken my sons with another friend to an amusement park near near my town and I it was my younger son and I he was misbehaving and acting out I don't remember what his behavior was but I just kept giving him like okay like if you're gonna do this you know you just stop I try taking time out I try to give him attention I try feeding him food I try to get him to go to the bathroom and he just kept acting out and finally I just said we're done like we're going and I talked to the other mom and she was gonna watch my other son and and I took him by his hand and we walked probably 30 something minutes all the way back to the car, kicking and screaming and hitting me and yelling. And I just, just had my head up high and just sing a happy song. <laughs> just like, okay. Oh and he was and, and I just left. And, and the biggest piece is, is that um, a couple of things. One, in, in, in that instance, I had another mom who was holding the space for my other kids. So what mm-hmm. can happen sometimes in these situations is if you have two children or three or four, you're not just managing one child's behavior. You have two or three others or one other who's who's going to react. But some, you know, in that instance, I just stayed with my breath. I had made the choice and I had to follow through. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is, is that I I see this with parents sometimes like, oh, my, my kid is like, they're bad or wrong. And why are they behaving this way? And it's like, they're kids. It's, they don't know how to manage their emotions and they don't understand their emotions and they don't even understand that they're having emotions. And another tool I used to do all the time with my children is when they would start acting a certain way, I would say to them, okay, what do you need? Are you hungry? Are you tired? do you need a hug or do you have to poop? And, and I would just be, you know, like I'd be washing the dishes and the kids like, you know, you know how they would ram into you and bump Mm -hmm. their heads and you're just like, okay, what do you need? Like, and, 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 you know, part of that is you're teaching the child to Mm self-soothe. And, and again, some people might say, oh, we're not food, but they may be low blood sugar. They Mm -hmm. may be tired. They may need physical affection. They may need to go have a BM. They might need to shift something inside of them and they don't know. But often I hear parents say like, like what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? They don't know. If they right. knew, they wouldn't be doing it. Yes. And I think it's also getting back to that, like you're taking even that pause and not reacting, but showing them, I see you and I'm here. What can I help you with? You yeah. know, kind of like, what is it that you need versus just trying to get rid of them because they're annoying you, which, you know, we're, and I, and I love how you said, no matter what we do, they're going to have something to complain about or, or to just to, you know, they will tell us later. They're going to, right. And yes, they will have pain. Yeah. I mean, I don't love that, but they're going to, and that it just, I think parents, we are rough on ourselves. Yeah. We're tough on ourselves. If anything doesn't go well for the kid, it's like, what did I do? What could mm-hmm. I have done? And I, I think if we are, you know, taking tools that um, professionals like you are offering, 
knowing that even you all, you know, it's like all of us, we're all going to, um, we're human and yeah. we can do everything really well by the book and they could still find something to tell us that we didn't do as well yeah. as. You know. you know, interestingly, on a side note, um, most mental health workers have a higher divorce rate than the re rest of the public. I and, imagine so. <laughs> and most doctors are hypochondriacs or <laughs> or do nothing huh. like like do not right. take care of themselves. Like it's so it's it just I mean, in the end, you know, we all are we all are human and mm -hmm. and but we tend to like want to put like things as good and bad, right and wrong, because that's how the mind functions. Yeah. And so that again, like it's, it, you know, like my experience is through yoga and meditation, but you know, for other people, it could be, you know, an, you know, an athlete or a religious person who goes and does prayer. Like part of it, it's, it's being able to learn to take our consciousness out of the experience but then we're witnessing the experience through, and that's how the shift is. And then that's when we're like, oh, it's not such a big deal. Or, oh, now I know what I can shift. Or, you know what? This is really hard. And guess what? It will be over. So when you say take your consciousness out of the experience, are you meaning like your thoughts and the um, kind of loop that you might, or like, you know, your, your history, is that what you mean by taking no, an experience or? Um, well, there, I have found in the years of working with people, there's people have two basic responses to life. If you take away all the noise and all the stories and all the stuff, and there's those walking through life who believe life is always happening to them. And that means that their consciousness, like their awareness their sense of focus, if it's their mind or their sense of self, is always within every experience and it's always happening to them. A good example, you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and people are like, that jerk, how come they did that to me? And I tell people, they have no idea who you are. They didn't mm -hmm. do it to you. They would have done it to any car that was there. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, many people who live in that awareness of life is always happening to me. So I have to make something happen or I have to, like, there's all of this pressure and thinking versus the other, which is life just happens, which doesn't mean that you never get upset, doesn't mean that you never have pain, doesn't mean that you're always walking, you know, in enlightenment and connected to everything. No, it just means that we're able to shift through our stories like, oh, oh my God, here I am making a story about it. I want to change that. To be able to stop and even just think I want to change my story is a different vibration of consciousness. It, and I imagine the people in the first group, their level of stress has got to be higher. Very, way high. <laughs> and, and, and it, and their level of it, you know, unfortunately, like, like life, you know, for those who can't see, like life is up and down, my fingers going up and down like a graft. This is going to happen no matter what, but with more awareness and doing the tools that help us slow down, be able to take care of ourselves, be able to reflect, it, it spreads out those waves. So the highs might last a little bit longer. And then you kind of go down to a medium and you're there for a little bit. And then you might have a dip, but then you come back out, but it's spread out over maybe months versus hours or minutes. Wow. All right. So let's, 
I know you have a book about these things, but can you give us some tools for people? Because I'm sure immediately people listening are like, I am in the first group, or they might be like, I think I'm more in the second group. But I imagine a lot of people are living in that first group, you know, and, um, and some of it is the patterning and some of it is the the busy busyness of our lives. I, I'm sure there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. But what are th- things that people can do, A, to become more aware that they mm-hmm. are operating in that mindset mm-hmm. and then how to get more out of it? Yeah. So I think the biggest piece is finding, and I tell people, I was telling a client today, three minutes a day. It does not need to be 20 minutes or an hour and a half. It's just finding three minutes a day where you practice being mindful about something. It could be mindful with your breath. It could be doing a mantra chanting. It could be listening to a hymn. It could be reading from the Bible. It could be, you know, reading some kind of inspirational passageway, but it's just taking a moment and pausing and allowing that to happen every single day. Like, like, you know, I was talking with another client he's like, oh, well, I meditate every day and I change it up every day. And I was like, well, that's fine to get started, but you really want to do the same thing for a period of time because you're moving into this frequency. Mm-hmm. And the more you connect to the frequency, even just for three minutes, and science has found that three minutes of meditation actually lowers your blood pressure. And I've had I've had people challenge that in in some of my yoga classes and they come back like, oh my God, it's true, it worked. So three minutes does make a difference. And when you're doing it with the same, you know, thing, like if it's meditation or breath or chanting or prayer or hymns or whatever, then you're going into that space. And then what happens is when you finish the three minutes, your walk through your life is slightly a little different. And, and then the next day you're back there for your three minutes and then you can tag on a minute over time, a minute and a minute. So well, that would I, be yeah, daily. Yeah, I love that. I Let me just um, yeah. kind of ask a little bit about that because you were saying your client was doing different things and you're saying, so for instance, if somebody was reading a verse or they were chanting something, it sounds like it would be beneficial to read the same thing or chant the same thing. So that repetition Mm -hmm. is creating more of a, of a wiring of sorts to be able to, because I know I was trained in transcendental meditation and I don't practice it really regularly, but I know when I'm having trouble sleeping, I just think of the mantra in my head and it's like my body just goes and poof, it's weird. It's because Mm -hmm. I practiced it pretty regularly for a while. And so I think for everybody listening, that's really important. Mm -hmm. It's not just like take three minutes and read a book. It's take three minutes to do something intentional that is the same, at least for a while. It is. You're developing that. For a month, for three months, you know, I kind of just have numbers just because for no major reason, but I would do, you know, one month or three months or six months or nine months and so forth. And so there's a couple of things is one is, When you do the same practice again and again, it rewires your neurological pathways in your brain. This is scientifically proven. And like your example is a perfect example. When you did it for a period of time, all you have to do is think or repeat that mantra and your mind will travel through that neurological pathway of relaxation. Meditation produces GABA 
and gray matter. So GABA is an amino acid and gray matter in the frontal lobe of our brain. Those two things, the gray matter and the, the GABA, helps us to naturally be calmer. And you actually can buy GABA in the store and just take a vitamin and swallow it or chew it. I actually am an amino acid therapist and I, and I do sometimes recommend that with clients. But meditation naturally releases this and increases it. Yeah, so and they've you, shown this on brain scans and all this kind yeah. of great neuroscience, how um, just a sh like you said, a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. We're such like naysayers, we think, it, but three minutes, if you're very, very um, in those three minutes, I'll, you can really uh, make a powerful change. Yeah. And, and I think that it's, you know, I mean, this is related and slightly off topic, but, you know, meditation has been around for centuries and not just in the Eastern philosophy, but all religion has meditation. They just call it prayer mm -hmm. or they call it singing hymns. And, you know, part of it, it's not so much about which religion or which space actually science research has found that there is not necessarily a difference between them in what create, what happens in the brain, but it is that frequency you come into in that period of time you're practicing. And that's what benefits your whole rest of your life, your relationship with your partner, your relationship to your children. And coming back to your original question of how does that change to be, am I, is this happening to me versus is this, you know, just happening is that when we are in that space, when we're in that meditative space, however, we may choose to do it. We're learning that we are a part of a, a bigger force doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, but we're a part of an energy force because when you slow down, what happens is you start to notice, I don't know where my body ends and the room expands. Mm. Um, you know, like, have you been in a yoga class and you have that experience? Yeah, I've, I've had that after yeah. just practicing on my own and coming up, sit to a seated position and feeling that like, yeah, just like I don't even feel my body. It just feels buzzy. It's that buzzy yeah. feeling of like, I'm just part of the air and part of, yeah. Right. Yeah. But then what's what we realize is I am a part of everything, but it's not necessarily happening to me. It, it's life is happening. I mean, you know, in some ways, it, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of loneliness in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes this idea of, you know, it can happen to anyone as someone may take it as like, oh, well, I don't matter and I'm alone. And it's like, well, no. And yes, I mean, we are alone, but we're also completely connected. And again, our thoughts are incredibly powerful. And so again, having a daily practice helps to do two things. This is what I love about chanting more so than just breath meditations is I have told people, and I teach this all the time, chanting meditations helps to change the space between your thoughts, and it helps to change the quality of your thoughts. You mm -hmm. will still always have thoughts. Your brain cannot not think. It can't. Yes, you, exactly. Meditation is not about shutting everything. No. I, I, people are like, I suck at meditation. My mind wanders. I'm like, it's that's its job. Yeah. <laughs> it's going right. to, it's going to keep going. It's how you manage it. Yeah. That and how we teach our minds what to focus on. Mm, yeah. So it's because it, we can't control the mind mm -hmm. because now we're getting in battle. Mm -hmm. Like 
and you know, at like extreme version, I've had a client who was really struggling and depression where she slapped herself because she was so mad at, she couldn't get herself out of her looping thoughts. So we can tr- in the, trying to control hurt ourselves. Mm-hmm. So part of it is again, chanting meditations and breath sequences helps us to learn to let go because we have something to focus on. Secondary, it helps to bring the mind along with us. Okay. I would love to know some chants that you teach or, and I know you have this in your book. Yeah. So everybody listening, that's going to be in the show notes, but can you share some of your favorite ones that you either do yourself or share with clients and what about them um, makes some of your favorites? Okay. So there's a couple that I have. So one is um, Ra-ma-da-sa-sa-se-so-hung. And these are just sound currents and they're, it's the energy of the earth, energy of the sun, energy of totality. It's just like a pulse. And um, I have this client I was working with who has really intense ruminating thoughts, a lot of self-hatred, acts out and judgmental, judgmental with other people and having a lot of issues with his partner. And I was saying to him, like, every time you have a negative thought, every time you start finding yourself ruminating, every time you start finding yourself criticizing someone else, I want you to chant, ra, ma, da, sa, sa, se, so, hung, and they take a big breath, ra, ma, da, sa, sa, se, so, hung. And the next next session I saw him, he's like, I'm chanting all the time. Well, but good. you can't say anything, <laughs> you can't well, say anything mean or angry <laughs> that, but he also noticed he was more relaxed. Mm. That's and, wonderful. Yeah. And so the thing that was free, that was just mm. him and his mind and his voice. And sometimes it was out loud. Sometimes it was in his mind. And even his kid said once like, Dada, are you muttering Rama? Cause the child knows the chant and he was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I am. Super, yeah. But that's how so I have a question. Work. Um, I, I know the answer, but I'm curious for you. So say somebody is like in a public space, like, is there an advantage to also listening to that versus I, I'm, I know the vocal, the vocalization is really helpful for stimulating the vagus nerve, which is very, very helpful for anxiety and, mm-hmm. and giving, getting us back into a parasympathetic state. So I, I know the mechanical and vibratory aspects of chanting, but can you also get that if you were to listen to it? It's different. I mean, you definitely will get an experience and, um, but there is something about, I mean, the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve is stimulated by rhythm Mm -hmm. and patterns. Mm -hmm. So even if you're just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, that believe it or not, will stimulate the vagus nerve. Um, but you can also do it with breath. So, so, and I'll get to the chanting piece in a second. So you can do it with segmented breathing. I actually have a, a, an album called meditations for the vagus nerve and they're all silent. Mm. And so for those, I'm going to come closer to the mic so you can hear my breath. So it sounds yeah. like this. So I'm pulsing my inhale. So if you think about one breath in, it might take, you know, like a short one would take maybe like four seconds or so, depending on people's breath pattern. 
but you're not doing a fluid inhale. You're, you're breaking it into segments where you're, so I did it extreme so that the listeners can hear it. So yeah, it's not a like sniff, that. like low it is. It's a sniff. Yeah. But, okay. but you're not pumping your navel in and out. It's mm-hmm. moving because if you think about your lungs, you're in, you're filling your lungs one fourth, two fourths, three fourths, four fourths full. Got now it. Now you're exhaling. So that technique stimulates the vagus nerve. So because- the focus is on the sniffing versus the belly pumping. The belly will be secondary to that because it's, it's a volume. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And the pulsing stimulates the vagus nerves the same as singing. So you can be in public and you wouldn't do it that extreme. It just has to be a little bit. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Like you could be in a meeting and no one's going to know what yeah, you're you doing. Like- <laughs> they might be like, what's happening over there? <laughs> right. But you want to do it somewhat slow because, yes. you know, you want to, and you can do inhale four, exhale one. You can do inhale two, exhale four. You can do different variations. Um, so that is a way to stimulate the vagus nerve without chanting and without, you know, some people don't feel comfortable chanting. Um, and then with with chanting, again, listening to mantra or music that's uplifting will just naturally relax us because it, it's entertaining. It entertains mm-hmm. the mind, not entertaining like movies or, um, you know. No, heavy- so it's just not thinking on your ruminating exactly. thoughts. It's exactly. giving, it's like, oh, something else to focus yeah. on. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, so we've got the three minute covered. So it could be with, uh, you know, mantra, it could be with reading a verse. It could be with closing your eyes and breathing. Mm -hmm. What are some other recommendations? Because so far, this sounds pretty easy, everybody. It is pretty easy. (laughs) We all need to do this. (laughs) I know. It just, and, and, you know, I always tell people, tag it onto something that you already do daily. Yeah. The habit formation, because then it's already looped in. Love it. Right. So most people, and I use this example, most people pee the very first thing they do when they get up. Mm-hmm. Our body says you got to empty and we go and empty. Some of us go have coffee after, some go brush their teeth after, sometimes, you know, whatever. But almost, I would say most people go to the bathroom. If you can pause after your toilet break and that's when you do your three minutes and you literally, you get a piece of paper and you write meditate and you stick it to where you're going to see it. And you might be like, oh, fine, but you're going to do it. Even if, you sit, even if you sit on the toilet. I love that. I love that. This is easy. This it is. is easy. This yeah. is really great. Okay. So, and then the other thing is if we're thinking about just stress and anxiety, some tools is too, is, is that, um, it's what, what we eat. So it's like kind of the example of with my sons of what do you need, but it's being able to look at what we're eating because, um, if we're eating a lot of bread and sugar, that's going to, you know, there's so much we can say, but the primary thing I'm going to say is more of our blood sugar. Mm-hmm. When our blood sugar drops, we're more likely to be stressed and anxious. So getting protein into your body every four hours that's another simple thing. It could be a meat stick. It could be um, if um, an egg. It could be nuts are okay, but they're high in fat and they're they're not. It's not the same. If you have so, what sugar, would be a vegan option besides nuts? Well, if if you do tofu, um, a really great 
thing that you can make is you're going to cut your tofu, get firm tofu, cut it into squares, little cubes, and you're going to saute it with olive oil and brags. And you can throw in a little beer's yeast and you just kind of saute it and you put it in little containers. And that would be a great protein. The other thing too is um, beans by themselves is actually not a complete protein. You have to have it with rice. So it's just trying to find some of those things. Um, quinoa has some protein in it. And so mm -hmm. that's another mm -hmm. one. So that helps uh, because protein helps regulate blood, blood sugar. sugar. Because if you're just taking carbs in without it. Uh, Turns to sugar. Mm -hmm. Got yeah. it. And, and so that will help stress. So the other stress and anxiety, the other thing to keep in mind is this stress is actually not bad. The problem Amen. is- I say this all the time. I'm yeah. like, stress is not bad until it is, but it's, you need it. You need it. Well, we can't It's our motivator. It. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so, it, um, so stress is, there's different kinds of stress. So when stress actually really is anxiety and people misunderstand this, stress is when we're stressful about something- of course, there's different degrees of stress and that's a different conversation. But if we're stressed about something and that something happens and the stress goes away, that's normal. Mm. It's perfectly normal. Like you have a speech you're going to give and you're really nervous and you're feeling anxious. Maybe your stomach's a little tight. You're a little snappy with your partner or your kids. But then the speech happens and you feel, oh, I feel great. That's a normal experience. If the speech happens and we're still continuing to feel stressed, that's chronic, that's anxiety. That means that your, your glandular system is constantly revving its engine. So it's like unresolved stress because re resolution after you finish the right. speech, that all those kind of stimulating hormones are coming back and, and you're back to normal, so to speak, but it's kind of, it's the unresolved feeling of that it doesn't go away. Yeah, that, and also people, there's a lot of people who live in a continuous state of anxiousness. And it, sadly, they almost think it's normal because they've been there for so long. And it's starting to happen younger and younger and younger. When mm -hmm. I first started working with clients, the average age was the 50s. And I'm seeing more and more people in their 20s and 30s who have issues that I saw 50s. 50s now, why, why do you think that is? Just, I, well, yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I think one is mental, mental health is a lot more prevalent in our community and society. And people are really wanting to work on being better people and managing their, their mental health. So I think that is one. Second is, is that there's a couple of things. One is we used to be able to suppress our issues because the structure around us was more set up to contain communities and families. We're so spread out. Many of us don't live near our families. Many of us have both parents working or both have to work to make ends meet. There's a lot of external stress that it's really hard just to, to suppress just childhood trauma that would usually come up in our you know 40s or 50s. And so now it's just up all the time. And, and so that's, that's one thing. And do you think the, even the best that we can do to not have our children exposed to, um, through technology to everything, I'm like, I think they're exposed to realities of the world a lot sooner 
Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of beautiful things about technology. We get to talk here. And so I I, I always want to say, I don't want to slam it. I think we have to learn how to, and I, you know, I'm lucky and you're lucky. My kids are out of that zone now. Mm -hmm. I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old and they weren't raised with technology. Uh, They kind of, you know, they got in there. The technology's really boomed the last 10 years. So they didn't Mm -hmm. have those early years. So I, when I see my younger friends who are dealing with having six and seven-year-olds who want to just be on the iPad all the time, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't yeah. have that. Mm-hmm. But with that, they are, um, they're aware of a lot more, I think, than we were not aware of. Do you think that contributes to that as well? And then on top it, of that, not having like a feeling of s- stability? It can be. I mean, I think sadly, we don't really know what's going to be the outcome for another 50 years or so, because those seven-year-olds have to be in, you know, 40s and 50s. I think in general, the problem is overstimulation Mm, and, um, and not just having like being bored, being bored is actually incredibly important because that's where creativity comes. If we're not bored, if we're always being stimulated with something, then we're not we're not being creative of find, finding a solution or figuring out what do I need to be happy because I'm always having something externally bring in a stimulation, which may not really be happiness, but it's stimulating. Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's, you know, I, again, I agree with you. Technology is amazing. And um, and it is difficult when you're, you know, two in two parents working full time and you have kids and there's a certain age. I'm, I'm, I know you... You, you having yet older kids now, but when they were young, man, they were giving me a run for my money sometimes and to be present and to be inspiring and to have boundaries and to teach them is exhausting. And then if you have a child that has a learning disability or any kind of other issues, it's just another, another big thing. And so sometimes it is easier. I was going to tease and say, I don't know if you remember baby Einstein. I think that was one of the main things. Yes, it was. VHS tapes (laughs) almost. And and then the the, the DVDs came out. Oh yeah. Right. So when we we thought, and then now they're showing that like none of that classical music helps, but it was fun. It was super innocuous at least. I got to take a shower. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was like, okay, at least we feel like we're doing something. (laughs) <laughs> right, or, right, you know, but yes, and and they were cute, very cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, so okay, so we've got the nutrition, we've got the uh, the three minute, and you're saying anxiety is defined as like kind of that remaining stress that is chronic that doesn't go away. That and I mean, there's also people, but people who tend to have extreme anxious moments, almost to the point of constant panic attacks, you're probably dealing more with some depression on top of that. And that's when you really want to have a professional support you to help you to be able to take the things apart. The way I explain it often to clients is for those of you who are knitters, if there's two ends that you can pull out of a ball of yarn, there's one end that you can pull and it unravels perfectly and there's one end you can pull on the ball of yarn and it's a complete mess and you can you almost want to just throw the thing away. When we have chronic anxiety and panic attacks that is probably has some depression in there, then you want to have a professional who can help you get the right string so you can open it up and look at what the parts are. Some of it could be from your past, some of it could be from your current situation. 
It could be a health issue. We don't know. And it is perfectly acceptable to get support and help. So. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point again, I think that one huge benefit now is that mental health is, is not the stigma it was before, you know, you would never shy away. I mean, we know people in our, you know, our grandparents, so they'd go to the doctor like, oh my, you know, this, I got to get this checked or they want it, you know, but like they were kind Mm -hmm. of in two camps, but to the mental health is just, it's what we don't necessarily see as, as a, like a pure diagnosis. There's a Mm -hmm. lot more layers to it. And I, I think that, you know, with, um, COVID and and the pandemic, many of these issues have come forth and they're Mm -hmm. no longer looked at as something that you don't seek professional help. In fact, I'm sure you've been busier than ever. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I know. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a book. So this, tell us about your book and what people can find it. I have, I have, I have it. I have, I've been reading it. I love it. It's it's a great, I mean, anybody like should just grab it because it's called The Stressless Brain and who doesn't want that? But tell us about what is inside and, and what motivated you to uh, deliver that stuff. Yes. So um, I've always wanted to write a book and I decided that when I wrote a book, what was really, really important to me is, is that at least half of the book was actual tools of what someone can do. Being in the mental health field and have read a lot of self-help books, even myself before I was a therapist and I read them now because I like to learn. One of the things that was a pet peeve of mine is so many mental health books. I would say 75 to 80% of the book is empathy and tells you what you're feeling like. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's what I have. And then you get to the end of the book and you're like, but what do I do to get rid of it? Or how do I change it? And it's, I found so often it was very vague. Like I Mm -hmm. didn't quite understand like, well, what am I supposed to do? Or they didn't really tell you what to do. And it was more just bringing it to light. Mm -hmm. And that would frustrate me because most of us, if we knew what we needed to do, we would be doing it. Mm -hmm. We, you know, like, if you knew like, oh, I have a rash and if I, it's not a rash, it's X amount. If I put this on it, it goes away. We would go get the stuff and go put it on most of us. So when I was, when I'm like, okay, when I write a book, I really want to be chock full of actual tools that people can do. I love that. It's yeah. it's the, and now what, you right. know, conundrum that, you know, happens a lot. People get like, oh, I can relate to this. This is me. And then it's like, and now what? Yeah. What do I do yeah. about it? So right. I'm so happy. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and so then what I decided is I wanted to write a book about stress and anxiety, and I wanted to bring in the meditation component. But I, for those of you who don't know me, even though I grew up in a very woo-woo spiritual world, I really love science research and psychology. And I don't just do something because someone told me. Mm-hmm. I'd like to back it up with in, you know, like research and psychology. So my book has quite a lot of research of why meditations work, why different kinds of meditations work and science behind it and psychology as well. And then it has a little bit about um, myself, just a tiny bit, just of how I got there. And then the other half of the book comes with 37 meditations, including digital downloads of music to each one. Each one has a mantra. Some is just listening and do breath and some is chanting along and you get the free downloads with the book. It's incredible. And I have to tell you, I love that you said that about the science because when I 
first picked it up and started reading it, I thought that you were a scientist. I really did. And then I'm like, wait. (laughs) So I appreciate that because that's bridging um, these two worlds, which really blend well together. And Mm -hmm. it's, I think for anyone who needs the science, it has it there. And anyone who needs more of the feeling stuff, it it incorporates it all. So everyone check out um, Matter's wonderful book, The Stressless Brain. And and also, just also really quick, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, The Dates Live, I have a um, a code that you can get a free book in the mail that I'll ship to you. Wow. Okay. So the code will be in the, you'll give me the code and I'll put I'll it in the show notes. I'll give you the code notes. and yeah, put in the show notes. And then there's another code for those who listen to it later, they can put it in, they get a free digital download. And the reason why I'm giving away my book is I'm actually writing a second edition. And so I have extras and I want to share them and I'm happy to put them in the mail or a digital download. Oh, I love that. So everybody look when this first um, launches, make sure you go and get that code and either way, get this book. It's so helpful. And it's, we can all do three minutes, people. Let's do yes. it. Let's do it together because the world needs all of us to show up uh, with our best selves, knowing it's going to be messy, and that, but yes. that's okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. It was uh, a privilege to talk to you today. I really learned a lot and, and just so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Laura. I really enjoyed it as well. And for everybody out there, I hope you did. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.